Good evening. Let's stand all over the house this evening. Let's continue to worship the Lord by singing an old hymn of the church, I Shall Not Be Moved. Well, glory, hallelujah, I shall not be moved. Anchored in Jehovah, I shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's planted by the remain standing and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just love you today. We glorify you and we magnify your name. Lord, we welcome you in this house tonight. We pray that you would inhabit the praises of your people. 
And let everything that is said and done, every song that is sung, every message that is given be for the upbuilding and advancement of the kingdom of God. And we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And everyone together said amen. Amen. And then you take the next few moments and greet those around you tonight in the Lord. God bless you. Let's stand all over the house and we're going to continue to worship the Lord with some old praise choruses that you'll probably know. We're going to just worship the Lord tonight. So let's sing together.
sing together. Eternal Father, Lord, we stand today and we decree and declare that we are thankful for what you've done. We are thankful that you are a God that is a healer. We thank you that you are a God that is a blesser. We thank you that you are a God that is steadfast and immovable. Father, we thank you that you are a God that is great and greatly to be praised. Father, we thank you that you are just God and God alone. Father, as we get ready to segue into the remaining portion of this service today, I pray that something would happen in this house. It would encourage somebody when they leave this place today to know they've been in the presence of the Lord. Thank you for the wonderful presence of God we felt in the house this morning. God, we believe that you're going to likewise do the same tonight. Lord, we just ask that everything that is said and done would be for the upbuilding of your kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray and ask these things. And the people of God together said, amen. 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 You can be seated momentarily. While you're being seated, I'm going to ask you to go grab your Bibles. Go with me to the book of Haggai, chapter number 2. Book of Haggai, chapter number 2. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1 there in Haggai, chapter number 2. We will begin We'll read down quite a few verses of scripture into that particular passage and we'll walk through this together as part of the body of Christ. Haggai chapter number 2 verse number 1 through verse number 9. Once you have it I would ask that if you could uh, please stand for the reading of God's word just so that we can honor God's word today. Haggai chapter number 2. For those that are joining online, we welcome you this evening, and we pray you've been blessed by the ministry of the music and the worship that's been offered up in this house today. I got chapter 2, verse number 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, 
the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people of God, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, be strong. All you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I have covenanted with you, when you came out of Egypt, as my spirit remains among you, do not fear. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, once more, yet in a little while, I will shake the heaven and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will, call, I will shake all nations. And they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, declares the Lord. The silver is mine, the gold is mine says the Lord of hosts. And the glory of the latter temple shall be greater than of the former. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord. I want to talk just for a few moments tonight on what it means to behold the glory. To behold the glory. Let's pray together. Eternal Father, I pray today that you would Hide me behind the cross of Calvary. Help me to decree and declare the word of Almighty God. Let not my words be heard, but your word be spoken. Father, I pray today, God, that you would let, God, you would take a coal from the altar of heaven and anoint these lips of clay. God, that I may only speak what needs to be spoken that would bring glory and honor to you. Father, I pray you would help us to not be hearers of the word only, but doers thereof likewise. And when we leave this place, we can truly know we've been in the presence of the Lord. We have met in your house, gathered in your name to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to be illuminated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And people of God together said amen. Amen. You may be seated if you can in the presence of the Lord. Beholding the glory of God. Haggai is, in fact, the second shortest book in the Old Testament. It's a very short book. In fact, it's two chapters. Chapter 1, chapter 2. It is not a long book. It is not an exhaustive book. If you actually are, are one that does... you. Know, Bible calendar reading or you do an online app type version of reading your Bible through in a year, oftentimes when you come to the book of Haggai, it will not break it down in multiple days. It will have you read the entire book in one sitting. It is about uh, 15 or so verses in chapter 1 and then around 23 verses in chapter 2. So you don't have but about 40, a little over 40 something verses to, to have to, to decompress or to to ponder, and so a lot of times those, those Bible apps will put it all as one structure or one unit. It is a small book, but yet it is very powerful in things that it, it brings. It talks about God's people being obedient. It talks about a blessing. It 
talks about the glory of God in his house in which, we're, in which we've read today. But it all traces back to 538 B.C. when a Persian king by the name of Cyrus issued a decree allowing the Jewish people to return back to Jerusalem to build the temple. You can find this in the correlation to Ezra chapter number 1 through 4 where they send a remnant of people to go. Nehemiah and others are there to repair walls, build walls, and, and to restore the order of the temple. They are led by a man, a governor, that we have come to know as Zerubbabel. Or in Ezra chapter 1 verse 8, you will hear him referred to as Shezbashar, which literally is just a different way they called his name. But he was, he was the leader or, or the governor, and he, he took about 50,000 men and women with him on this journey. And they journeyed back to Jerusalem, all 50,000 of them, and began immediately working on restoring the house of God. The importance of that was they knew that the house of God to the Jewish people was the centrality of their life. In fact, all the way tracing back to the Old Testament, the presence of God resided in the center of the camp and everybody else camped to the north, south, east, and west. But the tabernacle or the tangible presence of God with the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant resided in the center of the camp. And the point of that was that God was already establishing from the foundation of time that he was supposed to be at the center of it all. He was supposed to be in the center of our hearts. He's supposed to be in the center of our lives. Everything God does, he wants to be in the center of it all. Not on the fringes or on the outskirts, but in right in the middle of it all. And so they go back and they realize that before they can rebuild walls and before they can rebuild homes, they needed to restore God's house. They needed to re repair, repair the breaches of the house and, and make sure God's tabernacle or temple or church and place of worship was established so that people could come and hear the scriptures read and come and find healing and hope and come and find a place where God would meet with his people. And so they began to work on this temple. About two years into this journey, around 536, they completed the foundation and celebrated and rejoiced greatly according to Ezra 3, chapter 3, verse 8 and 10 through 10. They, they rejoiced. They, they, have, they have took two years and they have, they have worked hard, but they've got a foundation. And, and we have talked about this before in, in a message called Firm or Faulty Foundations where we discuss that Jesus uh, told us in the book of the, in the gospel writings that your foundation is essential to the structure and the stability of your house. He said there was a man who built his house on the sand. But when the winds came and the storms came, his house crumbled because he had a, a faulty foundation. But there also was a man who took the time to dig the footers and to lay the block and to, to have it on a concrete slab. And he, he built it on the rock, the Bible said. But when those same winds and those same waves came crashing, his house stood firm because he built it on a sure and a steady foundation. And so the people of God have built a house, or God's house, they have, they have got the foundation established. Can I tell you today that what we need to do in the world we're living in, and I'm not just talking about our church, but universal, the people of God, and for the kingdom of God, we've got to restore the foundations of what built God's church. 
Oh, we know that Jesus went to Calvary. We know that Jesus died on the cross. We know that Jesus shed his precious blood. But what we have to realize is Jesus died for the church. And we can't compromise his word. We can't compromise the morality. We can't compromise the teachings of scripture. Because Jesus didn't die for a powerless church. He didn't die for a faulty church. He didn't die for, a, if you will, a, a compromised church. But he died for a church that would be without spot without wrinkle without blemish a church that would stand up in the middle of cultural relevancy a church that would stand up in woke agendas and and woke ideologies and secular humanism church that would stand up and say there is such a thing as absolute truth there is such a thing as morality it's found in the word of god he died for a church that would stand out and stand up for the kingdom principles of heaven that's what he died for but we have now in a society, we live in a society that people can go to church or houses of worship and continue to live any old way, do any old thing, never feel conviction, never feel the, the Spirit of the Lord tapping them on the shoulder and letting them know the error of their ways. Many men and women can go to houses of worship and feel like they checked off a box for the day of spirituality and and we went to church and we got that off the list so now let's go to the rest of the week not realizing that it's not about just checking off a spiritual list of boxes but it's about having an encounter with the Lord too many people who look at church and view church as just a check mark I did it I went now let's go do something else it's not about that it's not about that you came on Sunday morning just to get your check mark because it's going to look good on perfect attendance in heaven fact you know when some of you and, and probably others of you may have done this before too I know they did it when I was a kid ever so often a Sunday school teacher or a Wednesday night teacher would come up with these gimmicks and plans that if you had perfect attendance over the next church year you would get to go to Carowinds or the church would take you on a trip it was a, an incentive to get you to come to church and and man children would be they would beat their mamas and daddies and annoy them to death. I can't miss church. I can't miss church. If I miss church, I don't get to go to Carowinds. I don't get to go to Chuck E. Cheese. I don't get to, I've got to go for six months for them to take me to the zoo or whatever it may be because there was an incentive. The sad reality of it is while that worked for children, the reality of it is, is now that's inbred that those children now become adults and now they want incentives to come to church. Well, I'll come to church, but what's in it for me? What are you offering me? What do I get to do? What, 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 what does it profit me to come? I read to you the scripture this morning. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses on soul? And today's society is taught about I don't do anything unless I'm getting something in return. That's what we have. That's the society in which we live in. Nobody wants to do anything because it's the right thing. They want to do it based on what they're getting in return. It's a selfish society. It's an it's a all about me syndrome. And the reality of it is that we live in a society and we live in a day and an hour where church is fed into that. The universal churches have fed into that and so now we have to come up with gimmicks whoever brings the most people today we're going to give out free airpods if we if we everybody that comes to church is going to get a raffle and we're going to draw out for a computer we're going to draw out for a hundred dollar gift card we're going to the person that brings the most guests on family and friends sunday is going to get a hundred dollar visa gift card i'm not saying sometimes that that's not an encouragement and can't be used in a, in a positive way but we shouldn't have to barter with people to get them to the house of god it shouldn't be the only time they come to God's house is when we're giving away something for free. See, Mother's Day and 
Father's Day and other times of the year, people come to church. And they might come with mamas and daddies. But I'm going to be honest with you. Some people come because they know the church gives stuff away on those holidays. They're going to get a flower. They're going to get a knife. They're going to get a can opener. They're going to get a mom. They're going to get something in response. And the reality of it is that over the course of time, church has compromised and and, and we have lost that, and so we have to get back to like Ezra and, and Zerubbabel and those buildings. We have to realize that we have to go back to the basics and get the foundation back. We've got to get back to, and we do that here, thank the Lord, and we do it a lot on Wednesdays now, but we've got to get back to making sure prayer is essential in this house. Jesus described it when he was walking through the temple one day and he saw all of the exchangement of goods in his house and the bartering and the buying and the selling once he flipped all over the tables and he finally drove everybody out, he literally made this decree. He said, my house was not called to be Walmart. It wasn't called to be a supermarket. It wasn't called to be a, a, a money-making business. My house was to be a house of prayer. That's what it's designed to do. You to talk to God. That's what I was supposed to, you're supposed to be here for, an encounter with the Lord. His reading, Jesus multiple times throughout his ministry. Many times we find him, he goes, in one occurrence, he goes into the temple and he grabs the the scroll and he begins to read Isaiah 61 so that the people of God hear the message and he talks about that he was the spirit of the Lord anointed him to preach and to bind the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty and set the captives free he was declaring the word of the Lord to the people of God that was his that was his method and that was his mindset of his house churches have to have prayer they have to have the reading of his word they have to have worship and I'm not talking about a show I'm not talking about showing the, the talent level. of it. I'm talking about true, ordained, God-anointed worship. Sometimes the best worship service is not the most qualified and gifted people. Sometimes the best worship service are the people who aren't the best singers or the best musicians, but they've been with God before they got on stage. They've been with God before they sang. They've been with God before they played. They've been with God before they spoke. The foundation was built. But amidst their success, Zerubbabel and others ran into challenges. They met the Samaritans. The Samaritans and some of the other neighboring communities, they feared the political and religious implications of a rebuilt temple in a thriving Jewish state. I would surmise today, I would like to say that that's only happened way back in 536 B.C., but that's happening today. In our own nation, we have people that fear the political and the religious implications. If God's house gets back to where it needs to be and the people of God get back to where they need to be, there are some in political arenas that are afraid of God's people if we get back to the basics of the word. So their mentality is to tear down, to threaten uh, tax-exempt status. Their, their mindset is to discourage the church, quarantine the church, make the church have to jump through hoops that other people don't have to do because they're afraid of the power of God. So these Samaritans and other neighboring communities, they opposed the project. They managed to discourage the people and halt the work. We live in a day and an hour that that's what the enemy is doing all over this land. He's discouraging the body of Christ. He's getting people to question their faith. Just this week alone, I had two people that reached out to me that go to church and they go to a go they go to a church and they're involved in church and they they, to my knowledge, part of the conversation were 
were, were doing thriving, doing great in church, and both of those separately didn't know the others had reached out. Both of them said, I, I don't know what I believe in. I don't know where God is. I don't feel God anymore. I'm beginning to wonder, has he ever loved me? I'm beginning to wonder, had he, did he ever care? If, if he did, why is my life turning like this? And why am I walking through what I'm walking through and going through what I'm going through? In fact, is it even real? Is it worth the fight anymore? See, the devil is all about discouraging the body of Christ to halt the work of God in their life, to stop them from persevering and pressing on. But there came a king out of Persia named Darius the Great. He ascended to the throne in 522 B.C. Darius had an invested interest in the religions of his entire empire, including the nation of Israel. At that, by the time Darius rolls around, Haggai and Zechariah began to, in the second year of his reign, begin to preach about the glory of God, the glory of God's house. Darius is intrigued. He is interested. And so Haggai goes to him and begins to, if you will, plead on behalf of the people of God that's, and began to say, we tried to start the process with the Samaritans and the other neighboring people. They, were, they began to discourage us. They began to make us question our faith. And so all the progress, we got the foundation of God's house established, but that's as far as we've got. Everything else stopped. And Haggai persistently kept going to Darius, and finally Darius agreed to allow the completion of the temple. In 516, he said, go finish the job. Get it done. In chapter 2 of Haggai, Haggai has this prophetic utterance referring to the coming of the Messiah, which he called the desire of all nations in verse 7. He talked about the coming of the Messiah would fill this rebuilt temple with glory that no one else had ever seen before. He talked about in the end of the chapter, Zerubbabel, that governor, that God would make him as a signet ring, as a guarantee that the Messiah one day would come. He would, he would let Zerubbabel be kind of an iconic figure to declare that the Messiah was on his way. They are tied to the judgment of nations at Christ's second coming, where nations will be shaken and kingdoms overthrown. But in, throughout this chapter 2, Haggai goes on a reflective moment, if you will. The first thing he talked about is he remembered the past. He didn't get lost in the past, but he remembered the past, and he embraced that which was in the past. How do I know? Verse 3, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? How do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? What, I, what Haggai was telling the people is he said, does anybody here remember what it was like when we went to church back then? Does anybody remember those Sunday morning prayer meetings before Sunday school? Does anybody remember those Sunday school hours where the Spirit of the Lord would sweep through and Sunday school and morning worship just kind of went together and you didn't even really stop Sunday school. You just kind of had all the other Sunday school classes slip in and worship just kind of took off. There was no stoppage time in between. 
He asked, does anybody remember the Sunday night throwdown services where everybody proverbially let their hair down. They didn't care about what anybody else thought. They came to church because they wanted to experience God. Does anybody remember the day that you met him on that Sunday night where the glory of the Lord fell in the house? He asked, did anybody remember those Wednesday night Bible study meetings where you sat around tables and you discussed the Word of God and you saw the Spirit of God begin to impact and disciple the people of God. Did anybody remember the 5 o'clock prayer meetings before the 6 p.m. Sunday services where people would come together and pray and ask God to rend the heavens and come down? Did anybody remember? That's what he's asking. But if I were to be a modern-day Haggai today, I would ask you those same questions. Does anybody remember the Sunday night at revival service when you met Jesus? Not everybody in this house got saved on Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Somebody got saved at 6 p.m. on a Sunday night. Somebody's heart was given to Jesus on a Tuesday night revival service somewhere in a community. There are people that were filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit on a Monday night prayer meeting or at a Wednesday morning Bible study or a Wednesday morning prayer meeting. See what Zerubbabel, so what Haggai was really saying is he says, listen, does anybody remember what God used to do in the house? See, I believe there are men and women all throughout this nation. They don't go to church now. They had mamas, daddies, grandmamas, grandpappies, and aunts and uncles that when they were children, they slept under pews at 11 p.m. because revival was happening and no one was leaving regardless of school started tomorrow. Now you can't get them to come back on Sunday night because little Johnny has to be in the bed at 8.30. I remember I didn't go to bed till 11 o'clock. Sometimes I fell asleep at 8.30, but God was moving at 8.30, so we weren't going home. Hello? And there was no such thing on, well, it's a school night on Tuesday. If the church was in revival, God would wake me up on Wednesday. We're going to church. There was no such thing as sports were more important than church. There wasn't a time where you got to decide if you wanted to go to church. It was a matter of you were going to church either in a good spirit or a bad spirit, you were either going to praise him with joy in your heart or tan on your hide. But one of the ways you were going to church. Church wasn't debatable. It wasn't amendable. I didn't get raised in a house where grandparents and family were my friends. They were my leaders, my parents. They didn't care if I liked it. That's what we were doing. Oh, of course I didn't want to go every Sunday night. Back when I was a kid, there was multiple times buddies of mine would go in between church on Sundays and we would go to the community center and play basketball. That was phenomenal. That was great. Parents had no problem with that, except one there was only one stipulation. You better be done by 4.30. You better get home or go to whoever's house that lives close by the church. You better take a shower. And by 5.15, you better be in this church. Because church starts at 6 p.m. and you're going to either be on the piano or the drums somewhere. But I want to make sure you're here by 5.30 because I don't want you to use some excuse. We got caught up in traffic and didn't make it back in time for church. And boy, believe you me, if you missed or you were late, you were going to answer for why. Because 
the basketball court was not to supersede the worship that night. See what Zerubbabel, or so what Haggai was saying was, did you not remember? See, see, for some of us in this room, our children and our grandchildren, right, maybe even our great-grandchildren, they don't know Tuesday night Bible studies. They don't know Monday night revivals. They've never sat at an 11 o'clock service and had to go to school the next day sleeping under a pew. They never wa- never saw the power of God fall at 9 p.m. instead of at 6.30 p.m. They've never, get, they've never been in services where everything is settling down and we're getting ready to have Brother Mike or Brother Randy do the benedictory prayer, but all of glory fell down at the benediction and it all started back up again. They've never been there. They don't know that. In reality, we could say that was the glory of our former houses. Some of you have seen it. Some of you lived it. Some of you walked in those places. Some of you experienced them. But for many people, that would be a memory. The glory of the former. The past. You know, is it discouraging sometimes to have Sunday p.m. service? Sure it is. Is it discouraging sometimes to have Wednesday nights services when there's not a lot of people that show up for church. I'm not talking about here. I'm talking about for pastors. Sure it is. Are there times you dread having a Monday night prayer meeting or a Thursday or Wednesday morning prayer meeting or having bringing a guest speaker in and having a you know four night revival Sunday through Wednesday? Is it is it discouraging when you think, oh, I hope they support, but nobody comes? Sure it is. But in days gone by. People went to church during revivals, or even if they didn't, there was a nucleus of people that you could depend on to show up because they were committed to the things of God. The reality of it is the question seems to be rhetorical in nature, but it actually is relevant in practice. Because for a lot of us in this room and a lot of us that are watching online and for a lot of churches and people, there are thousands upon thousands of people that are in this world. They have had some kind of exposure to Jesus but they've never had an encounter with Jesus they've been exposed to who he is they've not experienced him in the full pardoning of his presence the reality of it is while the past is to be appreciated celebrated lauded while the past is something I would say to you I'm kind of like the the writer that says Go back to the ancient landmarks. Don't remove the ancient landmarks. Go back to your first works. Go back and review. I think that's what Haggai was trying to tell Zerubbabel and the people. I think he was trying to say, don't you remember when God was in our house? It looks like the church is in shambles now. It looks like there's no hope. But don't you remember in the past when God showed up and he showed out? God's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. If God did it in 538, he can do it in 516 B.C. is what he's saying. Can I tell you if God did it in 1995 and 2000, God can do it in 2023. If God could save someone in 1997, God can save someone in 2023. He's still the same God. But while he embraced the past, and understood and he asked the, the question to the people to get their minds to remember the things of God. He 
also describes to them the present condition. Verse number four, he says, be strong now. Now, Zerubbabel, be strong, says the Lord. Joshua, son of Jehozadak, be strong as the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, and work, for I am with you. That's not futuristic language. That's present language. He didn't say, be strong, I'm coming to you. He didn't say, be strong, and very soon I'll catch up with you. He said, be strong now and work, not in the future, work now. Not that I'm coming in a little while, but he said, for I am with you. Not I will be, will be is futuristic. That means somewhere down the road he'll show up. But the, the, the verb am describes a present condition. I, if I was to go to the store tomorrow, I'm not going to say to Brianna, I'm going to the store. I'm going to say, hey, I think I will go to the store tomorrow. But if I get up tomorrow morning and say, hey, babe, um, I think I, I am going to run to the store real quick. I am going to go up there and pick that stuff up. You know what I'm telling her? I'm going right now. I am. When Moses was standing at the burning bush, he's getting his marching orders, or you will, his commissioning by God. He said, God, I can't speak. I got a stutter. I got a speech impediment. I don't know what to do. He said, I'm sending air in your way, and God does the signs. And the final question, Moses, he says, well, God, when I get there, they ask me about this and this supernatural encounter I have what am I supposed to say who am I supposed to say sent me he didn't say I will he didn't say tell them I one day will be he said you tell them Yahweh I am that I am that's right now I am the God that healeth thee not I am the God that one day will heal thee I am the God that that's today I am your redeemer I am the Lord your maker I am the restorer of time that is today I am who I am says the Lord the present he tells them continue to work continue to do the job because today I am with you can I tell you the same God that helped save souls and baptize and Holy Ghost fire in 95 and 97 and 2000 and 2006, that is the same God that is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So he is not the God that just could move back then in the past in the former house. And he's also not just the God that might move 10 years down the road. He's the same God that can move this morning. He's the same God that can move tonight. And he's the same God that can move on Wednesday. The God that moved in the altars this morning, that's the God of the past. And the God that moves on our hearts on Wednesday night in Bible study or prayer meeting, that's the God of the future but at 7 p.m. on this night he's the God that can meet our needs right now this morning's the past and Wednesday's the future but I serve a God of the right now he doesn't have to wait to the past or to the future he's a God in the present in our lives right in the middle of it all a God of the present God encourages Zerubbabel and Joshua 
second and first Chronicles 28 David is passing or beginning to start the process of passing his baton of leadership to his son Solomon first Chronicles 28 he's kind of given Solomon a kind of if you will a, a mentorship he's giving him instructions he's telling him how he's gonna if you will go on this journey to be the king and He's kind of given him, if you follow the Lord, walk in his paths, walk in the precepts, do not stray to the right or to the left, you stay true to God, God will establish the kingdom, he'll take care of you. And David begins to give Solomon instructions to the temple, and he tells his son, son, I wanted to build the temple, God told me I can't because I've shed too much blood. God did not want his house to be a house of blood. He wanted it to be a house of mercy and grace. He didn't want shed blood. He bled for the church, but he didn't want the church to bleed amongst themselves. But Solomon, he's called you, son, to take my place. He's called you to, I've already begun to gather the materials. I've already contracted people to start bringing stuff. But Solomon, you've got to finish the job. I've done as far as I can go. And as he began to give him the plans for the vestibule and the courts and the treasuries and the chambers, and he gave him, if you will, the architectural plans of the temple and how much gold it would take and weight to outline everything and overlay everything. When everything was said and done, in verse 20, the Bible says, And David looked to Solomon after he gave him all these instructions in 1 Chronicles 28 and 20, and he said, Solomon, be strong and have good courage. Do the work. Do not fear nor be dismayed for the Lord your God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished the work of service to the house of the Lord. Well, I just read to you in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 4. What did God tell Zerubbabel and Joshua? Be strong. Be of good courage, for I am with you. When God assigns us to a task, when God calls us to do something, He doesn't make us do it alone. He goes with us. He walks beside us. He puts His hand in our hand. He, he, and the times we can't walk, He puts us on His shoulders, and He walks while we're on His shoulders, and He carries us. God never leads us to valleys low or mountains high that He did not walk every step of the way with us on the journey. Even if I make my bed in the depths of hell, David said, you are there. Even if I ascend like the eagles into the heavens, you are there everywhere I go, Lord. You are there with me. Solomon, in his words of wisdom in the book of Proverbs, said, told us he will never leave us nor forsake us. He's that friend that sticks closer than a brother. What an impactful thought. On my good days, God is there. On my worst days, God is there. When I am living like King Midas and everything I touch turns to gold, God is there and He is great and greatly to be praised. But when all hell comes asunder and I feel like I am drowning under the waves of my life, He is there. When I sink into the 
bellows of the ways of life, he sends his outstretched arm just like he did Peter, and he'll pull me up above the waves and above the water, and he'll let me walk on the water with him. God rides on the water, and he rides on the clouds. The Bible says the clouds are his footstool. He rides on the clouds, and everything, the earth is his footstool. Everything was beneath him. So when I began to sink under the despair and the weight of this life, I have a God that proved it with Simon Peter that he'll reach down his hand as far as it has to go there's no place that his hand is too short and his feelers, neither is his ear too heavy that he cannot reach down and pick me up and set my feet out of the miry clay upon a rock to stand there's nowhere I can go where can I flee from your presence where can I get away from you there's nowhere he can reach down and he can get me and pull me up because he is with me everywhere I go you see fire can't consume him Waters can't drown him. Prisons can't bar him. Politicians can't stifle him. Tombs can't confine him. Crosses can't hold him. Death can't keep him. Graves can't hold him. And that same God that was able to defeat every one of those things. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? For the sting of death has been defeated and, and all by the power of the rest. That same God is the one that said, when the enemy comes in like a flood, I'll raise up a standard against him. He's the same God that said that I will be with you. Where you go, I go. I'll be right there with you. That's the same God that said that if you go with me, I'll go with you. That's the same God that says, I am the one that will give you peace in the middle of the storm that's the same God that will give us peace in the valley that's the same God that's the good shepherd that will lay down his life for us that's the same one that says we can be made more than an overcomer by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony that's the same God that says you even greater things can you do because of the spirit of God that resides inside of you that's who he is Miss Carol as you come we'll pick up the rest of the series next week the reality of it is in the world that we live in right now the present condition of our world is not very pretty right now our society is not very pretty our political structures and arenas are not very pretty the pervasive wickedness and vile acts that are going on across this nation are as grotesque and mimic the early civilization and cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The world in which we live today could almost be described as a modern day Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was a land that was known for homosexuality and pagan idolatry and temple prostitutions and, and vile and lewd acts and things that would be grotesque to the common ear. We live in a society today where that, become, that has become common in our day-to-day. Homosexuality is prevalent. LGBTQT, the list goes on. Every letter they can come up with is, prevail, is prevalent. It prevails. Their ideologies, their agendas seem to take the headlines while religious freedoms and religious protections of those freedoms somehow sink underneath the weight of laws and Amendments and the protection of God's people somehow gets 
shuffled under the rug to promote the agenda of the enemy, wickedness. If you look at the present condition of the church, overall, universally, sometimes that can be discouraging for you to watch. Churches that used to run three and four hundred people now running twenty-five and thirty in those buildings. Denominations that are now questioning what they believe and are now, if you will, compromising their moral absolutes and truth to the pressures of secular humanistic ideologies to where they now will let you be a minister of the gospel and live in open sin and ordain you and let you literally teach the principles of God's word using the same Bibles we use but use it to promote vile and lewd acts. While our kids are having to go to libraries where they're debating on what kinds of gender and sexual identity crisis books are to be put in there and all of these things that are grotesque in nature to read, but they won't let us put a Bible inside that library. And that's infringing on someone's religious beliefs. They'll let you read material that would make an, uh, make an adult blush in the vileness and grotesque nature of their descriptions on those pages, but they won't let you read about the love of God in a children's book about Noah and the ark, or Jonah and the great fish, or Daniel overcoming a lion and a lion's den. They'll sit them in classes where they'll teach them that rocks collided, evolution created, Big Bang theories created, mutations created, but if you bring in creation theory, what they call creationism, or where you teach a seven day what God created, and God created, they say that that is heretical, not scientific. And they won't let you teach that. You can go into that classroom and you can bark like a dog, purr like a cat, and they have to honor that with litter boxes and, 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 and toys and things within the classroom to make it a warm environment. But you can't open up your class with prayer. Someone may get offended by you just praying. You, you can't go to a football game. You can have a moment of silence. But you can't say God's name if you open up with a prayer of invocation. And if you do happen to pray, you can pray, just don't use God's name or use any pronoun that would refer to God. Just kind of keep it with no identity really. That's now if little Johnny or little Sally ends up on the football field, takes a big lick and they become unconscious and they're laying motionless and, and everybody's going on the field and all these EMS, then all of a sudden the press box then wants to say prayers for the family. But you didn't want me to pray before the game got started. But you want me to pray now when the game is now life or death. I'm going to tell you whether or not it's on a football field or not. Life is a game of life or death. Everyone, it's appointed unto man, wants to die, and then the judgment. Everything about this life is life or death. Eternal life or eternal death. The whole life. The reality of it is this. They promote. They promote. But I also would say the present condition of the church is in a 
if you will, a, a, a state or a pattern of uncertainty. You've got men and women who are ordained and are pastors and preachers living in open sin. But you've also got those same men and women that now have bought into the feminism of God. And they don't pray to God our Father, they pray to God our Mother. The she-God, not the he-God. In fact, just this week alone at a Lutheran university, in their chapel service, they're just like Liberty and Charleston, although they have weekly convocations or chapels. Their Wednesday night service this past week, I watched it online. Somebody had put a clip on it. I went back and found it, watched the whole service. In church at such and such Lutheran university, they had a tribute to God and Beyonce. The worship songs were all twisted songs of Beyonce, but were trying to make them as worship songs. They took songs like, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it, and was talking about that that's supposed to be the ring we get when we go to heaven. And the leader that came up to preach the gospel began to say, let us say the Lord's Prayer in honor of our mother, God our mother, our eternal mother, who art in heaven. How wonderful is her name. Her kingdom has no end. Her love is boundless. In your bosom we lay our hearts. We know you are the provider of all we need. You are our nurturer and our nourishment. And they prayed a recreated version of the Lord's Prayer in a feministic format, terminology. And it was all said and done. They said, let's stand up and let's honor God our mother. Lift your hands all over the house and let's begin to worship God our mother. And they began to play another, I don't even remember the song, but some secular song that they were using for religious purposes and began to worship God the mother in a Christian the church world is not in a good condition anymore now while we should embrace the past while we should appreciate the past and why we also should not get stuck in the past I would also advise us that some of the things that happened in the past would be good to be brought back to the present because our present is a whole lot worse than our past hello we're not getting better I say this before we pray and I'll pick up part two next week, next Sunday night. I'm not saying that the glory of the former house, and you'll, you'll hear this next week as we get to the end of this message. It gets to the point that Haggai makes this statement to the people of God. He said the glory of the former house, it was good. It was wonderful. It was awesome. But he says, Zerubbabel, Joshua, Lord of hosts says this, the glory of the latter house shall be greater than that of the former house. Yes, he was speaking prophetically of the Messiah to come, but can I tell you, I also believe that can be just like what Joel 2.28 is. I'm not saying that our past wasn't good, but I still believe God has sons and daughters to prophesy. And old men to dream dreams and young men to see visions and on the handmaidens and servants to for God to pour out his spirit. I still believe God's got something better than what we've got going right now in this world. I believe that. 
the glory of God's people. I'm not saying that we'll have more people than we had in days gone by, but I, can, I do believe the presence of God can be even greater than what we've experienced in days gone by. Because the Bible said only two or three have to agree is touching any one thing, and he shows up. He didn't say two or three hundred. He said if just two or three people show up, I'll come and join them. And I leave with this thought. If you weren't here this morning, or maybe you were in a different part of the building, you may not know this. This morning, every Sunday, we have Sunday school in here. The kids and teenagers and Brother Randy's pairs and spares. That's just all the people who don't know where to go. We send them back there. Some are married. Some are not. Some are older. Some are younger. Some are, they don't know if they're old or young. They're just in between. They, so they're pairs and spares. They just all go together. They were having a time back there. Brother Randy and the class were laughing. And that's great. They were, you know, talking talking about the tribes of Israel and how old, 85 years old, how many children you'd have. And he told us this morning in worship, he said, man, I wouldn't want to start with 12, I wouldn't want to have 12 kids, and I certainly wouldn't want to start at 85. And Sister Carol leaned over and said he'd be finding another woman. I'm not having 12 kids, and I'm not starting at 80 either. My kids were back there. Half of them looked like they were stoned because they were tired. They were all looked like walking dead zombies when they walked into Sunday school this morning. Normally, every Sunday, I ask, do we need to do a drug test on y'all? Because you guys look like y'all been up late. Sister Sandy had her group. I had left my office to go out, and I had grabbed my tithes and offerings and my Bible and stuff to go out this way so I didn't interrupt. Brother Marion was already up here, and he was kind of good morning class. How's everybody doing? How was your week? My kids are asleep. Half of them are unconscious in the room. And I heard the loudest commotion through my walls. Scared my kids to death. They go, what in the world is going on out there? They, that, they are so loud. They're like, it's just like I've never heard of them. It's like, I can hear Brother Marion. I can hear Sister Melody. I can, what's all these people doing? They're loud. What's going on out there? I said, they're having church. See what happened this morning in Sunday school. Nothing wrong with how Brother Randy's class went, or Sister Sandy's class went, or my class went. Nothing was wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying other everybody else's Sunday school classes were bad today. What I am saying is though, but but in this particular house here, before there was ever the discussion of how many children Jacob created, they had an experience with God in the house. It's been a long time since I've seen God invade Sunday school. I'm not talking about altar calls after the preacher gave you a five points, a poem, and a good pick-me-up speech. I'm talking about we just come in and said, how's everybody week? Oh, it's going good. And somebody said, God's been good to me. And they start shouting and speaking in tongues all the house. It's been a long time since God's, I've been in services where Sunday school got interrupted. I was a kid probably the last time I saw Sunday school get thrown up and messed up. Until today. We saw it today. I didn't really see it, but I could hear it, obviously. I still believe God wants to do things that the latter house can be greater than the former houses. Why does it just have to be once every 25 years that he invades Sunday school? Why can't he invade Sunday school whenever he wants? Why can't he invade Sunday night? Why can't he invade Wednesday night? Why can't he invade Wednesday prayer meeting? Why can't he invade uh, Sunday morning? Why, why, invade anytime he wants. In the first song, the last song, or in between, just invade, take over. 
See, my friend, I'll tell you today this. We better have him invade our, our services in our hearts because our church, and I'm not talking about just this physical structure. I mean his universal church. Everything that we have depends on if he's in the midst. If he's not there, we're not doing anything. Because his word says this, unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor are wasting their time. They labor in vain. We can come every Sunday night all we want to, but if we're coming just to check off a box, we're wasting our time. Unless the Lord's in the house, we've done it in vain. Unless the Lord interrupts Sunday school, we've come to Sunday school in vain. Unless the Lord is in the house on when we all get to heaven and we're singing out at the opening chorus, unless the Lord's in the house, we've done it all in vain. You go out to this place tonight, you go home tonight, you go to work tomorrow, or go to do whatever you have to do tomorrow, unless the Lord goes with you, you're doing it in vain all we need he's all we've got to have I heard some of them talking today about children and grandchildren all over the building and seeing the presence of the Lord and I thought to myself it's not that God's not still the God who can do it we just don't set up the atmosphere for his arrival I have memories I'm not saying I've seen it in a long time but I have countless memories as a child invaded services of the Holy Spirit changing the room I have friends that were 13 and 14 years old getting carried out drunk in the spirit and still stepping on their school buses speaking in tongues to go to a public school, step on the bus to go to school and then step off the bus from, from school and the Holy Spirit hits them when they step back off the bus. They, the Holy Spirit kind of didn't make a big deal in the public school to mess them up, but when they got off the bus at 345 and stepped back on holy ground, he showed back up and he helped walk with them to the house. I watched him carry out with four guys, two on one, two guys with the legs, two guys with the arms that have to carry him across the street because he couldn't walk because he was drunk under the power of God as a 13-year-old boy. I saw that one. I watched it. I've seen children that were unconscious and literally lifeless and limp in the children's church come into the altars and nobody knew if they were going to survive and they already were turning colors and complexions but men and women of faith and spirit filled women and men began to pray and God to allow life to restore and children to cough and resurrect enough there was no concussion there was no doctor life happened instantly in a house I saw that I watched that with my own eyes from the stage I saw people shout all over the church, fall all over, pass out, or he will get slain in the spirit, hit their head on the corner of the communion table, hit it so hard that it bounced. The communion table and their head on the floor should have split them wide open, should have had them make a migraine headache or cause damage. And when they got up, there was no headache, there was no blood, there was no knot, there was not even a spot that they hit. I saw that. I saw altar benches all the way across the aisle and people shout and speak in tongues and flip over the altar benches and land in all kinds of contorted positions but the dress wasn't up here the dress lay flat like somebody had ironed it on the floor so I didn't have to worry about grabbing a modesty cloth because the Lord made sure it was modest when he landed them they flipped but everything else went back to perfection I saw people run around aisles Jericho march come running as fast as they can across the front both parties eyes were closed looked like they were getting ready to be a train to hit each other but at the last second with their eyes closed somehow knew to move from out of each other's way and still run and not even touch any each other on their way by I saw that the 
the last time your children saw that? When's the last time my child saw that? Or your grandchildren? And I tell you, and I say this loosely, and then I'm going to pray. Most of those happened on Sunday night, not Sunday morning. Most of the time, Sunday morning, that's when all the polished people came to church, so we had to be on our best behavior because we didn't want to offend everybody in the community, so we behaved. But on Sunday nights when we would have Baptist people show up, or that had a Baptist background show up and would ask the pastor coming in the back door or some of the saints of God, are we going to have a throwdown service tonight? Because they didn't know how to describe what was happening on Sunday nights in church. They only called it a throwdown because they didn't know what was happening because more often than not the preacher didn't preach or more often than not something was going to happen and it was almost a disappointment if it was like Sunday morning because you expected Sunday night to come unglued. Most of those big powerhouse Pentecostals encounters happened on Monday and Tuesday night revivals, not Sunday morning. Sunday morning might have started it and the evangelist was pretty good, but Sunday through Wednesday is when all the chains broke in the house. God showed up. I'm not saying God can't show up on Sunday morning. What I'm telling you is, is God is more than just a Sunday morning God. We have to get back to where we lay those foundations like that temple. We've got to get the foundations right, but we have to get it right so that the glory of this latter house can be greater than that of the former house. But we cannot have the glory of that former house if we're not willing to lay foundations like that former house laid too. It cannot be built on shifting sands and shifting ideologies. It has to be built on Christ, the solid rock. And nothing, the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. With every head bowed and every eye closed, eternal Father, to the best of my ability, I have preached your word to your people today. God, we have had a good day in your house. We've had a good day in your presence. Men, women, Boys and girls, children of all ages have joined together and they have had the opportunity to hear the Word of God preached to them in this sacred place. They might have heard it in Sunday school, in children's church, morning worship, potentially even on Sunday night. But ultimately, God, we know that it is your spirit. It is not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Father, when we leave this place, there are some folks that are going to walk into jobs that are of non-Christian entities tomorrow morning. There are going to be people that cross our paths tomorrow that don't know you. Help us to be men and women that lay the right foundation in our hearts and in this church so that the glory of the latter house shall be that greater of the former house. Not that we don't embrace the past and appreciate the past, but Lord, we look not only in the present, but we look to the future of the promises of God's word that you are going to do exceedingly and abundantly above that which our minds can think or comprehend according to the power of God that works within us. Father, thank you for these faithful men and women and those watching online that have joined us tonight. Father, I pray a special prayer that you'd bless them and keep them. Make your face shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Lift up your countenance towards them. Give them the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Guard their hearts until they come again. 
let the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, our strength and blessed Redeemer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray and ask these things. People of God together said amen. If you'll stand all over the house this evening, I'm going to ask for the Randy Archberger to close us in benedictory prayer. Immediately following his prayer, a blessing over you tonight. You're free to be dismissed. Don't forget Wednesday night Bible study at 7 p.m. in the back. Don't forget uh, our pillars breakfast on Saturday. And uh, also don't forget next Sunday service and snack night next Sunday night. We love you. God bless you, Brother Randy.